1: Welcome to Investment Ideas. I'm the host today, Ed Harrison, for Real Vision. I have the distinct pleasure of talking to Dario Perkins, who's a managing director of macro at TS Lombard. Welcome to Real Vision, Dario.
2: Hi, nice to see you.
1: And you know, uh, I called you Dario uh, before because just we, as we were talking, we were talking about uh, the, the correct uh, Italian pronunciation, but uh, we're, we're going to continue on with the, the Anglo Saxon pronunciation for the rest of the, the time here. Now, uh, Dario, you and I, we're going to be talking about a regime shift that's happening. Uh, I think it's apropos because just yesterday, we're taping this here on Thursday, uh, April the 29th, just yesterday, uh, we saw uh, the President of the United States uh, talk about what he wants to do for the United States, and it is an astonishing uh, change, a a marked shift in terms of how we're thinking about the role of fiscal policy at all times. that's how I see it. How do you see it? Do you think this is a regime shift? And if it is, um,
2: what's it shifting from? I think it's massive. I mean, this is the biggest change in economics you know I've seen since I started doing economics in the late '90s. Uh, and you know, it's it's really a a generational change. You know, we have. Uh, young economists coming through who see the world very differently, and you're starting to see that being reflected in policy. And you know, for the last twelve months, um, I've spent a lot of time talking with investors about regime changes, and they're all focused on monetary policy. You know, they're all focused on the Fed, and is the Fed going to allow inflation to overshoot its target, and is it going to focus on employment rather than inflation, all of that stuff. But they've really been looking in the wrong place because we're now in a world of fiscal dominance. This is a world where it's fiscal policy, not monetary policy, that's that could change things going forward. You know, the Fed and other central banks they can accommodate this, but it's really down to fiscal policy to make a difference. And I think you know, from the policy response to this crisis, you're really looking for two things. You're looking, you know, can we get back to where we were before this crisis, which is a question of scarring and the damage that the crisis may have done to the economy, and then you're looking, well, if we do go back to where we were. Is this just the old cycle? You know, the old cycle wasn't very good. You know, it was the new mediocre. It was cellular stagnation. Um, can we do better than that? And I think, you know, with this massive fiscal program that you're getting from Biden in the US, it's really not just an attempt to 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 fight off scarring and get back to where you were. It's a it's a it's a chance to change the trajectory of the economy going forward. And we need this all over the world. You know, just doing this in the US isn't going to be enough. Uh, we need this in in Germany, and we've got the German elections coming up. Uh, towards the end of the year, you know, that could be a regime shift in Europe as well. So, you know, for the first time in a while, I, I feel quite optimistic about about the future. You know, we're we're getting policies now that make a lot more sense in you know in trying to make the world better than it's been for a long time. So, to me, this is a, this is a massive change.
1: Yeah. So, I think that uh, you, you know the way that we can talk about this is we can talk about it in terms of what you see as the future, and then I can talk about what other people are talking about as risks to that, because obviously, you seem to be very positive about uh, this regime shift, but many other people are apprehensive. Uh, they're talking about inflation, they're talking about misallocation of resources, they're talking about uh, you know uh, social engineering, things of that nature, and i think that there's a big debate part of it is economic part of it's political how do you frame it what's the the software that you're thinking about that plugs into
2: this new regime shift it is, i think it is about software you know we we have these long super cycles that last you know 30 40 years uh, and they're based on this 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 kind of interaction or power dynamic between labour and capital, and who wins that that power struggle determines what our institutions look like. And you know we've had these various regimes. So you know from the from the Second World War we had a regime where labour was basically dominant, and the end game of that was inflation, wage price spirals, you know, tr- trade unions that became too powerful. Uh, and we ended up in a, in a pretty difficult place in the '70s. You know, people that remember the '70s uh, do not, definitely don't want to go back there. Uh, and then we had, uh, you know, an entirely different regime from the '80s onwards, which was the dominance of capital. You know, we focused on inflation targets. We focused on keeping interest rates low. Uh, we focused on um, destroying trade unions. We, it was the kind of neoliberalism that was that was winning throughout that period and we ended up in an equally bad position you know with with the debt bubbles and the debt crisis and you know after 2008 people thought there was going to be a regime change but the difficulty was nobody knew what to do you know that the old software was broken and we could see that it was software it was broken but nobody knew what the alternative was and i think over the last 10 years alternatives have started to spring up and obviously the, you know the one that's getting all of the press is mmt and MMT is basically trying to recreate the post-World War II framework. So it wants to go all the way back um, to kind of capitalism 2.0, which was before neoliberalism. And so you have um, older investors, particularly. You know, I, I mean, I talk to our clients. Some of them are quite old, and they look back on that regime and they say, "Well, why on earth do we want to go back there? You know, that was that was unambiguously bad. We ended up in a really bad place." And I think when they look at MMT, they can see that this new software, if that's what we're going to end up with, has these inherent biases in it. It has these inherent flaws in it. You know, It will, in the end, take us back to an inflation regime. But I think you know, that's not the starting point. The starting point is that we're, we're beginning this process with you know, nominal bond yields at 700-year lows, which was just screaming out for a different policy mix. And if MMT is winning the debate in fiscal policy, I think that's actually a pretty good thing, because we've had this obsession with austerity, with debt, with deficits. and for 10 years, MMT has been you know, continuously right about everything. So it's not surprising that they're they're winning this, this argument now. If we can end up in a regime where uh, there is some kind of MMT software built into fiscal policy, so fiscal policy is not obsessed with debt or deficits, but worried about the inflation consequences of that debt and deficits, but we retain uh, independent central banks, we retain independent Fed, we actually end up in a much better place. You know, we, that's, that's, that's kind of the best possible outcome out of this because we'll end up with fiscal policy doing more, but monetary policy being able to react to that and that's not where mmt wants to take us mmt wants to just deactivate monetary policy completely and focus entirely on fiscal policy so i see those risks you know i understand why particularly older investors are worried about this new regime and where that might take us but that could be 10 20 30 years away you know right now for this for this cycle that we're we're entering i think this is unambiguously good
1: Yeah, you know, the one comment that you made that stands out for me that I want to drill down on is where you were talking about MM MMTers for the last decade getting it right. And I'm thinking about this from the software analogy that you're using. You know, first of all, we're going to go into uh, what getting it right means, but also in terms of the software component, i.e., descriptive versus prescriptive. Uh, thinking about the economy, because when you look back at 2008 and the great financial crisis and everything that happened there, mainstream economics did not see it coming. We were completely blindsided by it, because a lot of mainstream economists had no idea it was coming, but when you say MMTers have gotten it right for the last decade, I think it's true that MMTers were much more knowledgeable about that crisis. Uh, and also what happened in the aftermath of that crisis. How do you see that MMT is getting it right? What does
2: that really mean? Yeah, I mean, I think MMT sometimes has a weird view of history. So, um, you know, the dot-com bubble, for example, the MMT view of that is is really quite odd. You know, it basically blames it on surpluses, government surpluses, Clinton surpluses, creating a deficit in the private sector. You know, that that kind of thinking is a little bit odd, because, you know, it was a booming economy that created the surpluses. So the causation is a bit around the wrong way. In terms of getting it right, you know, I think it's it's the kind of reverse of the mainstream continuously getting it wrong so um you know after the global financial crisis um we went for austerity everywhere and we went for QE and MMT throughout that period was saying well this isn't really going to make any any difference you know the QE isn't going to QE isn't going to help because it's just swapping one one uh, government liability for another uh and um you know austerity is is going to hurt the economy and that mix of of easy monetary policy, but not really very effective monetary policy, and tightening government policy, which is very effective, uh, was always going to be deflationary. And then you had the euro crisis came along, and that also confused the mainstream. And we ended up with all kinds of weird arguments about what was causing that. And so, I mean, I remember... You know, Bill Gross talking about UK gilts being on a bed of nitroglycerin. I mean, I was sitting at the UK Treasury at that point, and they were all freaking out. They were like, "Oh my, you know, oh my goodness, what's going to happen if this becomes a market theme? You know, we're totally screwed." It kind of pushed us into austerity in the UK, uh, and there was this this worry that we would turn into Greece. And I think you had a bit of this in the, in the US as well. You know, people writing crazy op-eds, <laughs> saying all kinds of terrible things were going to happen if you didn't tighten fiscal policy, and you know. Where did we end up? We ended up with with yields going lower and lower and lower over a period of a decade to lows that we'd never seen before, uh, and you know th- this austerity being extremely damaging. And in fact, you know we've had this kind of decade of toxic politics as well that's come from that austerity. So you know th- there's a whole bunch of things there that right from the start, MMT got right and um, and the mainstream got wrong. Trump stimulus was another one. You know the. the from a kind of Keynesian perspective, MMT perspective, it, it was never going to cause inflation. It was, you know, the, the fiscal multipliers on things like cussing corporation tax were were minuscule, um, but yet the mainstream was worried about overheating, uh, and so you know we've had this period where the mainstream just kept getting things wrong, and MMT kept getting things right, and the mainstream reaction to that, well, you know, it's well if we'd known interest rates, the re- the, the, the the kind of structural interest rate was zero then we would have come up with the same policy conclusions as MMT. So MMT is nothing new. Well, you know, the mainstream had kind of forgotten a lot of stuff that MMT spent the last 10 years reminding them. And that, you know, forgetting those things, you know, really basic things like the the danger of bond vigilantes, which the mainstream were obsessed with, has cost the mainstream. And so, you know, as I said, we have a whole new generation of economists that look at the world and see it very, very differently from the way that people were looking at it 10 years ago. You know, Reinhardt Rogoff warning about what would happen if debt hit 100% of GDP, turning into Greece, bed of nitroglycerin, you know, that stuff is gone. Nobody believes that anymore. So you know, in that sense, MMT has already won. And even this debate now about the size of this stimulus in the US, it's all about inflation. You know, People like Summers are saying, well, we're going to get inflation if we do that. Well, that's exactly what MMT has been telling you, is that there's constraint on fiscal policy. You know, nobody's talking about the bond vigilantes coming back and, and you know, destroying the public finances. I think that's where the rubber hits the road. Actually, the
1: the bond vigilantes. Let's talk about how we should be thinking about the bond vigilantes, because I've been thinking about the bond vigilantes not as uh, people who are uh, forcing the Fed, forcing the BOE, forcing the ECB to do their bidding, but rather uh, market analysts, uh, you know, institutional investors who are front running likely uh, policy decisions, meaning that we're working in a regime where there is a huge amount of of, of fiscal space uh, that is facilitated in part by issuing uh, government bonds. And so what the market's doing, the vigilantes, they're not really vigilantes in that strict sense. They're really predictors of, yeah. of, of what those policies are. How, how do you see
2: that? I think that's the right way to think about it. I mean, the the idea that people have of a bond vigilante is the kind of liar's poker. You know, it's four cheeseburgers for breakfast, and then you go out and punish some government for running a deficit that's too big. Um, This idea that, you know, they're there as some kind of punisher or (laughs) destroyer of, of politicians and and you know people remember you know kind of euro uh, the, the the kind of euro crisis but before that um the erm in europe and and countries getting kicked out of various exchange rate mechanisms and getting punished by markets so there's this idea of of uh you know, the, 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 this, you know a vigilante someone that that kind of polices the 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 governments um but i think your uh, definition is much more sensible. You know what we what we see in bond markets is that we have fed we have fed guidance which is very very clear, but it's conditional. You know it's based on a particular state of the world, uh, and the Fed has said you know this is how we think the economy is going to evolve over the next few years. We think there's going to be some scarring from this crisis. We think it's going to take time for the labour market to heal. We think inflation will stay low, uh, and we want inflation to go above. Two percent. So you know there's a very clear um, guidance as to what the Fed wants and how it sees the world evolving. But the Fed doesn't know. You know the Fed can't be certain that that's what's going to happen. And what they've given us is a policy guidance that's based on a particular state of the world. And if you've got a government which is spending huge amounts of money in a way that will move the dial on growth, which will which will heal the labour market more quickly, and which might generate inflation more quickly. Then it makes sense that bond markets would react to that. You know, they are trying to be forward-looking, uh, and so you, you, you know we're not in a situation. We were never in a situation where the yield is just going to be flat at zero forever until the Fed decides to move. We're in a in a world where um, you know people don't know what the future looks like, and it reflects a balance of risks, and that balance of risks will change. Uh, and when you've got big fiscal stimulus coming, and you when you're exiting. This crisis, because you have vaccines, it's natural that bond markets would start to move that forward, and I think the Fed has been perfectly comfortable with that. And you know, the, the kind of Fed watchers have been a bit disturbed about how comfortable the Fed has been with what it's been seeing. Um, but it reflects, you know, real changes. It, it reflects, you know, vaccines and fiscal stimulus, and it reflects good things. If um, central bankers became concerned that financial conditions were tightening too much. Then they would react to that and they would try to talk them back down again.
1: You know, I think that's where the rubber hits the road in terms of calling this an investment ideas uh, video, because really, first and foremost, we're thinking about the bond market in terms of fiscal stimulus and the, the Fed's new response. We're, we're definitely talking about fiscal dominance, and that's where people should keep their eye, but we're also definitely talking to a degree about uh, policy from a uh, central bank perspective. The question I have for you is, what do you see happening going forward given the mix uh, that we have? New A new regime shift on the fiscal side, and to me, it seems like almost a regime shift on the monetary side where when you think about the Fed at a minimum having a dual mandate, Uh, one of the few central banks that has this dual mandate. Yesterday, Jay Powell was completely on the employment side. It was almost as if he was saying, I don't really care about inflation at this point. If you ask me uh, which mandate is uh, more important, I would tell you it's employment.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, I think there has been a shift. There has been a regime shift at the Fed. Uh, it's not as significant as the, as the fiscal regime shift because the policy tools are less powerful right now. You know, we've seen that for the last decade where central banks have really struggled. Um, but there's a change of emphasis and it, and it almost reflects the emergence of things like MMT because, you know, there is a kind of new progressive macroeconomics, which is saying, you know, looking at old, ways of doing things like the Nehru and saying, how can you treat unemployed people as a tool for keeping inflation down when we haven't had inflation for such a long time? And I think the Fed in particular has really learned the lesson of the last decade, which was that you know as the economy expanded, as the unemployment rate got to very low levels, they continuously had to revise down those narrow estimates. So they'd be much too pessimistic about the supply side of the economy. But also, they were seeing, um, you know, kind of inclusive, progressive advantages of doing that. You know, people were coming back into the labour market who hadn't been in the labour market for a long time. You know, ethnic minority groups, disabled people. You know, you could see, and in a context where central banks are under enormous pressure for inequality, uh, for the, the the kind of neoliberal approach to policy, um, they've had to they've had to accommodate this. You know, th- there is a kind of hint of MMT about even the way that central banks are reacting now. And I think you know, that is very significant. It does mean that this Fed is, is not going to try to preempt a hot economy. You know, It's not going to tighten in advance of inflation. It thinks that actually it could generate some pretty big employment gains and actually start to tackle things like inequality. By focusing on employment rather than inflation, and you know, again, this is a big shift. It's not as big as fiscal policy because it's not as powerful as fiscal policy. You know, fiscal policy can actually deal with these problems. Um, you know, if if you want to, you know, if you if you want to target inequality, you can do that with fiscal tools. You can't do it with monetary tools. But by giving the economy a chance to grow, uh, and by generating you know a bit of hotness in the labour market, you start to shift the power a little bit. So, you know, as I said at the start, you know, there are these super cycles, there's this balance of power between labour and capital. If you can run the labour market hotter, you're actually starting to move power away from capital towards Labour. Now, there's still big secular forces that favour capital, you know, globalisation, technology, demographics. So you're not going to massively change the dial on inflation here. Uh, You're not going to massively change those power dynamics. But the experience of the last 10 years suggests that there are things that central banks can do. And given the political context where these central banks are under enormous pressure, uh, you know, they're doing what they can. So we're getting the, you know, I think Paul McCullough called this a romance with MMT. You know, even for central bankers, I think you can see that kind of romance starting to come through. It's not a marriage because, you know, they would react to inflation if they had to. So we haven't turned off monetary policy in the way that MMT wants us to. But they've adjusted to this. As I said, you know, these kind of long super cycles, you've had this before. You know, the end of the 1800s, you had this kind of threat of Marxism and socialism. And no country you know, in the West went totally Marxist, but they reacted to shifting politics. So we started to get things like the welfare state, started to get trade unions. You know, we started to get a different type of politics. And I think there's an element of that now in central banking.
1: Yeah, it is important to know your uh, economic history because that's very important in terms of understanding where we are. You said uh, three. You said something that I thought was interesting about secular trends. You talked about demographics. You talked about technology, and you talked about globalization, all of which are uh, deflationary, disinflationary trends. And if I could go back to the previous regime, you know, uh, capitalism 3.0. What we saw is a world in which the central bank was uh, managing uh, the the turns of cycles, and really, they allowed uh, the unemployment rate to, sh- to to go down to what they considered Nehru uh, in a in a world in which those three disinflationary forces were occurring, meaning that you never got to the point where there was any Nehru at the end of the cycle. And so, when they started to to jack up rates, uh, that was right before the income gains could be had by mm-hmm. wide swaths of the wage earning community. to me th- that is a force for bond yields coming down on, on a secular basis over the past forty years. Now we're in a different regime. W- what happens? Over the next two to three years in this particular regime, from a bond yield perspective, given that backdrop.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to com now. That's dot com.
2: Well, I think we get a, a kind of gentle but quite contained rise in yields. You know, in, in some senses, we've reached an inflection point in yields. You know, as you said, you know, we still have these secular forces. You know, we still have globalization. We still have aging demographics. Uh, we still have... Um, You know, technology, those are all still quite deflationary. So it's very difficult to imagine a situation where we go back, you know, straight to the 1970s inflation problem. Um, but we don't have that being compounded by austerity and by central banks tightening policy too soon so i think that is an inflection point in yields it's a gentle inflection point you know this is going to be very contained um central banks are going to work very hard to stop this going too far um and you know, this is why you have some some kind of you know, older guys worrying worrying about financial repression and all of this kind of stuff. You know, it's much too early to worry about that kind of stuff. But we are, you know, we are getting a, a kind of gentle rise in yields. And actually, I think this is helpful, and it's helpful from an equity perspective as well, because you know, the last couple of years in equity markets has been you know quite troubling in some ways. You know, we've had this kind of continued search for yield and duration, uh, and so you know, things like tech companies have, have gained. An ever increasing share of the market because they've been repriced on the basis that interest rates would be zero forever. You know what I'm talking about here is a world that is quite different. It's a world that that, that starts to, um, you know, prioritise value over those kind of growth stocks. So it's a different type of equity market too. And when you look at history, the last ten years is really unusual in terms of that growth kind of value dynamic. This kind of constant outperformance of growth over value, and um, you know so I, I think from an investor perspective, those are the big two lessons. You know, yields are going gradually higher and the nature of the stock market is changing. And in a sense, you know, I, I I said I'm optimistic because I think you know, this is a world where actually Wall Street and mainstream can actually learn to live together rather than you know what we've had over the last 10 years, which has been this this you know, where asset prices have gone through the roof, but it hasn't looked very stable. You know, there's been this kind of toxic politics, this rising inequality. There's been a lot of real serious dangers, and, and markets didn't respond to that because they thought they were too distant and you know, not the thing to worry about right now. Um, but there was always this big risk that came from that regime, and I think this new regime could end up being a lot healthier from an investor perspective.
1: You know that that is interesting. The point about uh, the equity market being different. Let's drill down on that. Um, I'm thinking about it from a large cap tech perspective because you were talking about technology uh, companies having a winner take all uh, framework. Our CEO Rao Powell he's been talking a lot about the so-called exponential age. That's a, a, a place where yes, you have winner take all network effects. Uh, you have massive technological change, potentially, that is beneficial to the likes of Apple, which reported yesterday gangbuster numbers on the back of the kinds of trends that we're talking about. In the growth versus value paradigm, where do companies like that sit, Uh, and what do you do as an investor thinking about that? I'm thinking about the Apples, I'm thinking about the Amazons of the world, and maybe even Google or Facebook companies like that, that dominate their individual spaces?
2: I mean, those, those companies are still going to be dominant in, in that sense. You know, I mean, they still have fantastic growth opportunities. But the issue was that they were being repriced on the basis that interest rates were going to be zero for a very, very long time. Uh, and, um, you know, it was creating a very kind of top-heavy stock market, one that looked vulnerable to any kind of rise in interest rates, and so if what we're seeing now is is a rebalancing and a rotation within the stock market, because you know we, we start to get a, a macro policy that favours growth over just low inflation, just keeping the discount rate low, I think that's ultimately a much healthier dynamic. You know that 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 very top-heavy market was extremely vulnerable to something going wrong, uh, and this to me looks like a, a much more sustainable dynamic. You know, uh,
1: we've talked a lot about uh, uh, MMT and the regime shift. Almost thinking about the Fed and Bidenomics, but there's a regime shift that's going on globally and in Europe in particular. I think that we can talk about a potential regime shift. You uh, previewed it when you talked about the potential for the Green Party to actually take the uh, the helm in Germany in September what's going on there in terms of the regime shift how aggressive is the regime shift relative to what's happening in the United States and what should we expect in Europe from a growth perspective
2: I I think it's happening I mean you have this you have a tradition of German Politicians obsessed with inflation, you know, not, not just because of the hyperinflation everybody knows about, but also the 1970s. You know, we we said that people were worried about the 1970s coming back. And the Germans were the one major economy that came out of the 1970s with credibility. You know, that they hadn't accommodated the oil price shocks. They had tightened policy, they had a very strict. Uh, nominal anchor, as we say in economics, you know, in, in terms of a monetary targeting regime, and they didn't get the, the the kind of wage price spirals that we saw in the US and the UK. So they came out of that regime and they spent the last thirty years saying we're the only people that got this right, you know, we're always going to have this inflation bias and, and prevent inflation from coming back. And I think you know we've ended up with, particularly the last decade, we've had this extremely dangerous austerity, uh, and it's been coming from Germany. But it's infected the whole of the euro area. You know, we, we had a situation where a record proportion of the euro area was running current account surpluses at the same time and, and trying to run budget surpluses, and that's just not healthy. Uh, and I think you know what's happening is that we have a, 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 a kind of fundamental challenge to our way of life that's coming from climate change, and I think German politics is starting to reflect that. Now in Europe, you have these fiscal rules and the authorities suspended these fiscal rules last year so that they pushed them into next year Uh, we're now waiting for the german election to see what will happen with these fiscal rules because it's possible that if you get a green-led government in germany uh, they will say well we want to exclude things like infrastructure investment you know smart green infrastructure investment exactly what biden is doing we want to we want to exclude that from our deficits We want to exclude that from our our debt numbers. And so you open up uh, this fiscal capacity. And then if you apply that to the rest of the euro area, you've effectively got the start of massive public expenditure uh, and a war on climate change. And that could be massive from a a global perspective and and particularly from a European perspective. Uh, And so I think that that change does look like it's going to happen. And I think, you know, the German elections is the key trigger point for that. But, you know, globally, I I think I've always thought that eventually climate change would be the trigger for this kind of existential threat that would force governments to behave very differently. If you look at the last decade, we were actually cutting. Uh, green investment. We were cutting all kinds of infrastructure spending to meet austerity to get deficits down. If we can take those types of investment out of our budget metrics, um, you know we're we're creating a lot of fiscal space there to, to, for a very different regime. And so I'm hopeful that that's what we're going to see coming out of Brussels and coming out of Germany over the next 12 months.
1: Yeah, that this is a really interesting uh, perspective because uh, I've been following what's going on in Europe, and I think that it's obviously more multifaceted because you have a lot of different countries involved. But uh, let's look at Germany uh, and Brussels because of uh, von der Leyen, because she's uh, you know from the CDU. That's the party that is nominally uh, more conservative in Germany. And she's very much in favor of uh, green energy as a a vehicle for uh, increasing spending at the EU level, and and as a result, avoiding dealing with uh, you know austerity at the national level. Here's how I'm looking at it: is that okay? So you ha- you have a certain degree of regime shift there because of green energy, even if, if von der Leyen and Merkel are both automatically saying, yes, we're willing to do this, then that tells you there's that shift uh, within Germany, which could be greater even so if you have uh, the Green Party that gets in there. But at the same time, you have the Germans talking to the EU uh, in the same old way that they used to talk. Uh, for instance, uh, last week, I noticed that uh, the Spanish were taking the task by the Germans, the Germans said, you know, now that COVID is going to be over next year, really, you know, uh, I think the Spanish should be uh, running uh, a more austere budget. This was something that El País, uh, Spanish newspaper, pointed out. They said that uh, Germany is starting to demand first fiscal adjustments from Spain in a recommendation to the OECD. What hmm. do you think? How is this going to play out, especially? when you have a technocrat like Mario Draghi in Italy saying, you know what, uh, we need some space as well, and he has the credibility uh, to, to get things done from a uh, structural adjustment perspective. There are a lot of different
2: moving parts there. How do you see that developing? well that's why my my scheme is so clever because you exclude um the things that you want governments to invest in from those deficit numbers uh, and you you know you're you're kind of encouraging that kind of spending which is what we want and you're discouraging current you know current spending which i think is what the germans want too um so i think you know there is this debate about how to change the fiscal rules um i think you, you know that that's going to look very different in 12 months time and i think if you can do something like that like like excluding green investment um then you you know you you have that fiscal capacity the other part of this of course is that you can say well mmt doesn't really apply to europe because you know famously they're currency users rather than currency issuers you know this is the whole mmt you know the whole basis of mmt in some sense um but the ECB has changed that dynamic because the ECB is, is effectively, you know, we're never going to have a euro crisis like we had in 2010, 2011, because I remember talking to investors back then. And the big question was always the same. Where is the balance sheet going to come from to protect these countries? You know, there was almost a one way bet against Italy, because if you're a, a, a bond vigilante to bring back that term, uh, and you thought Italy was going to leave the euro, you um you you attacked Italy, its yield went up, the Germans forced more austerity on Italy, and it became more likely that Italy would have to leave the euro. And so it, you know, for a while in 2010, 2011, you had this one-way bet that I don't think people really understood. And then when Mario Draghi said, we'll do whatever it takes to protect the euro, that was totally changed. You know, that whole dynamic broke. And that bet became a two way bet. And in fact, it was a bet that most investors weren't prepared to take anymore. So people realized that they couldn't, you know, the market was never going to be able to force the euro apart anymore because you had that ECB backstop. So in a sense, the ECB turned all of these countries into currency issuers because they can now, you know, as long as they have the fiscal space, uh, the ECB is going to buy their bonds. You know, the other, the other kind of beauty about my green initiative for Europe is that you have an ECB saying, well, we want to start to direct our asset purchases towards green investments as too. You know, We realize that we have to do our part for, for the climate change as well. So you can see how this comes together quite nicely in a situation where uh, the ECB provides the backstop and these governments are actually allowed to do the spending that they need to do. You know, it doesn't make sense to obsess about having a, a zero budget deficit or even a, a deficit less than 3%, you know, if you've got this very serious challenge that you need to do something about.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from and Ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com.
1: All of that said, it doesn't sound to me like the Europeans are going to be as fast moving as the U.S. And it doesn't sound like they're going to it, the numbers are going to be as big. So, if you had to talk about it just from a pure economic perspective and then how that translates into markets, what are you thinking about the European assets versus American assets, European economy versus the American economy?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a sort of decoupling that's going on. Um, you know, we, we have this to a degree already. Um, because you know Europe's had second waves of the pandemic, it's had less fiscal support. Um, you know it's had mutations in the virus. It's in lockdown again. So you have a taste of this. But I think the risk is that that turns into a, a, a kind of medium-term, longer-term divergence as well. Because you know one way of looking at what Biden's doing is that he he wants to do everything he can to prevent scarring. You know maybe it's a, a kind of short-term. Thing about midterms coming up, and you know, wanting to get back quicker. But you know, the, the, the whole objective is to prevent scarring and to provide some kind of new secular growth catalyst for the for the next cycle. In Europe, we haven't done enough of that. You know, the, the, the fiscal response has been too small. Um, you're more likely to have had balance sheet scarring because a lot of this support has been loans. So if you look at corporate debt in Europe, it's gone up massively, whereas that hasn't happened in the US because you've used income transfers rather than, than loans. So I think Europe is in much more danger of suffering scarring from this crisis. Uh, and you know the labor market tends to be quite sticky as well. When we've had these kind of big shocks in the past, it's always taken much longer for Europe to recover Than the US. Uh, And so, you know, I think this could turn into a, a, a kind of medium term divergence. And the only thing that really changes that is massive fiscal expansion. And Europe probably needs that much more than the US. You know, the US has advantages, not just, we're talking about demographics. You know, the US has this kind of a short-term sweet spot in demographics where you've got a lot of people moving into the kind of 30 40 age group you know they're going to want housing um europe doesn't have that it doesn't have that kind of demographic sweet spot so it has to do more in terms of, of fiscal policy and i think you're right i think they'll be slower because they're always slower and because they need Uh, to be able to agree things across countries. And because there's always this moral hazard, you know, sometimes the Germans don't trust the Italians or the Spanish. And even with my idea, which is that you exclude green infrastructure from deficits, the Germans might be thinking, well, what are the Italians going to include as green infrastructure? (laughs) You (laughs) you can see that that, that even that could be gained. So, you know, there are these kind of tricky issues that you don't have in the US that I think naturally favour The US over Europe.
1: You know, you said at one point in time uh, during your um, analysis, in Europe, we. uh, I I caught that. uh, And what it makes me think is that that's very inclusive of you because uh, when you talk about currency uh, issuers, you're living in a country right now that is a currency issuer. Yet, when you look back to the great financial crisis and the aftermath, I would argue that uh, the UK was a country which did impose, had self imposed austerity, moved very quickly towards uh, fiscal consolidation in a way that uh, was negative for growth. Uh, what's going on in the UK
2: from a paradigm shift perspective? So, the, I mean, the UK has this kind of weird politics. Um, and it goes back, you know, a long way in history. I mean, after the the First World War, what did we do? We went for austerity. You know, we didn't have the Roaring Twenties; we had a disastrous Twenties of mass unemployment. Uh, and then after the global financial crisis, we did the same thing again. You know, we went for this kind of stinging austerity. Now, as I said, I was at the UK Treasury in 2010. Um, part of it was fear. You know, they were scared about what Bill Gross had written about UK guilts. You know, I remember those discussions, you know, high level discussions at the Treasury about um you know could this become a market theme is the market going to turn against us you know i actually had to put together a powerpoint presentation to give to uh, uk politicians who were going around the world trying to convince foreign investors that they shouldn't dump their uk assets so you know there was there was an element of fear there but there was also a kind of weird um conservative reading of history and so you know back in 2010 there was this paper that somebody at the treasury had written that said well look what thatcher did she managed to tighten the fiscal position and we offset it with monetary policy so let's just do that again you know let's go for stinging austerity and uh, it'll be okay because the bank of england is going to do qe and they'll be able to fully offset that and I think over the last decade we realised that that really wasn't the case. You know that that monetary policy was effectively pushing on a string, that QE really didn't do very much at all. That we probably didn't even need QE because we had we had interest rates at seven hundred year lows in the UK. You know I think I think there has been a, a realisation that um, you know the world wasn't as we thought it would be ten years ago. Um, but you know the, the Treasury still has this kind of sound money bias so i think we're a little bit behind here we have had a budget in the last month or so um which you know short term was very supportive um but it does still have this kind of medium term well let's tighten our belts again so i'm not sure that we fully learnt the lessons of this in the uk certainly you know there's 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 no kind of immediate prospect of of doing what biden is doing uh, and you know we may even fall behind the Germans at this rate. But you know I would hope. I mean I've certainly learned the lessons of the last ten years. You know having sat in the Treasury ten years ago, I hope that my former colleagues have understood that the world isn't the one they thought it was going to be, and that they couldn't repeat what Thatcher did. You know how did Thatcher manage to tighten uh, fiscal policy without causing you know a serious kind of depression? Well, we had a credit boom. You know we had a massive credit boom. Uh, you know, no, no major economy's been able to create that credit boom over the last 10 years. You know, we we just haven't had that kind of appetite for private debt to upset to offset the austerity. So the whole kind of Thatcher model was just deeply flawed.
1: Yeah. And by the way, you know, uh, having a credit boom. Uh, the Nordics, uh, who had a credit boom at the same time, and Canada and the UK, all you know, ended up with housing bubbles that b- popped and led to you know a horrible uh, beginning of the 1990s. Plus, on top of that, you know, that credit boom was fueled by interest rates going down uh, from record high levels. They're at zero or effectively zero across the world now. So, uh, I think that you're right that that's probably not going to happen. One thing that I wanted to talk to you about, just from the, okay, that all sounds interesting, but what about uh, the negatives? Inflation, I want to talk to you about that. Your view is is that inflation is not a uh, short-term or even a medium-term risk uh, to the US, uh, to the UK, and to Europe in particular, especially in the US, because uh, that's where you're going to get the biggest uh, oomph. Why is it that you don't see inflation uh, picking up when the numbers right in front of us are showing inflation rising at a prodigious rate uh, that's causing everyone to worry?
2: I kind of see it the, the same way um, that that Powell was expressing it yesterday. It was, it was kind of annoying because his his kind of different phases of inflation were exactly what I've been writing about a few months earlier. That you had these kind of base effects that everybody knew about. But you also had these kind of level effects that would come through because of these supply bottlenecks in the global economy. So, a few months ago, I put out this, this this paper about all of these supply bottlenecks and how this would create this kind of temporary inflation surge. But I think fundamentally, you you have to kind of look beyond that and say, well, secularly, what's changed here? And the thing about inflation is that you know, easy monetary policy is a necessary condition for inflation, but it's not sufficient. So if we had a genuine inflation problem and central banks were not willing or able to react to that inflation problem, it would become much more serious. And that's effectively what happened in the 1970s when we had this regime of fiscal dominance where everything central banks did was was kind of a reluctance to raise interest rates because they were worried about what it would do to the public finances. And so you ended up with financial repression and all kinds of, of scary stuff going on. Um, but you know, we're not we're not in that kind of world anymore. You know, secularly there are these powerful deflationary forces that are keeping inflation very low. And central banks just wanting inflation to go up isn't enough. Now, I think, you know, I, I, I get that there are these these inflationistas around. And I think they're on to something. In a, in a sense, they're looking at MMT, they're looking at the regime that we're going into, and they're saying this has an inherent inflation bias. You know we we can't trust politicians to tighten fiscal policy if they have an inflation problem. that's the lesson from history. so it's it's all you know it's all well and good for Stephanie Kelton to say well inflation is the constraint and if we had an inflation problem we'd deal with it we'd type, we'd raise taxes or we'd cut spending. The reality is that that's not the lesson from history and actually you need monetary policy to be able to respond to that. And so you know as I said, monetary policy, it's not sufficient alone. You know, we, Central banks have spent the last 10 years saying, we want inflation to go up, and they haven't been able to achieve that because their policy tools were not enough to generate that outcome. Now, if we're going into a world where fiscal policy just spends and spends and spends, and you get an inflation problem, and then central banks start to raise interest rates, and then governments spend even more because their debt servicing is going up, then yes, you know that that is an inflation end game. And you know, if we're using the software analogy, the bug built into MMT is inflation. You know, that's the end game. That's where we ended up before. And so, when inflationistas look at it and they say, "Well, I can see there's an inflation bias here. That's what we should worry about," you know, that's true. But it's not what we should worry about right now, because we're a long way from having the kind of uh, fiscal stimulus globally that is going to create that inflation. You know, as we said, you know, the U.S. is going down this route. Germany and Europe probably will go down this route, but it will be slower and it will take time. And China's going the other way, because China's done MMT for 10 years. You know, the, the, the Chinese romance with MMT is over. You know, forget running the economy hot. The Chinese want to run their economy cold. And they're using climate change in the other way. They're saying, well, we want an economy that grows more slowly and is more sustainable and is more greener because we haven't got all of these, these factories pumping out gas. So they're actually inclined to accept weaker growth. And if you look at the last decade, the thing that really confused investors was why is China leading the cycle? You know, I remember getting these charts from clients saying, well, look at Chinese credit. And compare that to the global industrial cycle. There's this eight-month lag. You know, China stimulates credit, and then eight months later, the global economy picks up. China tightens credit eight months later, the rest of the world slows down. You know, how can this be possible? The trade linkages aren't aren't big enough. And it was because we were in a world of secular stagnation, because the Chinese were the only one using their balance sheets in a kind of MMT way. They were the marginal driver of these mini reflation and deflation cycles. But the Chinese don't want to do that anymore. You know, they're looking at their debt and they're actually worrying about it. You know, they don't want to turn into Japan. Uh, and so, you know, for the next few years and uh, and even longer, I think we're going to get a a very different approach from China. So we've lost uh, the kind of marginal driver of global demand, the, the, the marginal driver of the global inflation deflation story. And we now have to replace it with something else. And this is the whole kind of coming out of this crisis, you know, are we going to have the same new mediocre old mediocre that we had before, or are we going to have something different? And actually, in losing the kind of China MMT policy, we're losing one of the biggest growth drivers. We may come out of this crisis with a bit of scarring as well. So actually, we need a new secular driver. And the only thing that can really provide that you know, unless you believe in some kind of YOLO economy where everyone's going to behave in a very different way to how they've reacted over the past, you know, there'll be some of that for sure. You know, we're all going to go out and spend a little bit more because we can. You know, we're going to go to restaurants, we're going to do things that we haven't done for 12 months. Is that a new secular driver? You know, I'm very skeptical. So if it's not going to be China and it's not going to be consumers because of some new kind of you know, <laughs> never say die attitude, it's going to have to be DM governments. You know, it's going to have to be governments that provide that secular change. And I can only see, you know, kind of big, green, smart investment as the way of, you know, getting the economy going. Because if we don't have that, you know, we're just going to be stuck in that old regime that we were in before. And the the potential repercussions of that in terms of politics are really quite serious. And, you know, most investors don't think about that because it's too far away. But you know the, the politics of the last decade has been pretty scary everywhere. By the way,
1: that was a great uh, five minutes there. Uh, you know, I think that, that that's the, that's the clip that we that we want to uh, um, highlight. The post part of that clip is, okay, so what does this mean for thinking about investment going forward? because it, you're hopeful, uh, but there are multiple ways that this can go. Um, it, it can go in the hopeful way, it can go in the less hopeful way, and there are multiple parties involved. We we talked about Europe, we talked about the US, China, uh, you mentioned Japan just now, we've talked about the UK, and then there's the whole of the emerging markets, just particularly Asia, which is around China as well. Uh, if you had to have asset allocation in terms of bonds and stocks, where would you deviate from? The
2: norm uh, and concentrate over the, the medium term? You know, I think that the basic story is that you, you, you think yields go up and you think there's a big rotation in stocks. Um, and I think to a degree, that provides you a bit of protection against the thing that people are scared of. Now, what's the thing that people are scared of? They're scared of inflation. They're scared of the 1970s. What was scary about the 1970s? Well, the big thing was that the behavior of inflation changed. Now, we went from a regime where inflation had been pro-cyclical to an inflation, to an inflation that became counter-cyclical. And when inflation goes from being uh, pro-cyclical to counter-cyclical, it changes your bond equity correlation. And this is the thing that I think investors are are worried about. You know, if we're in a world of stagflation or return of the 1970s, and inflation starts to behave counter-cyclically, then bonds are no longer a protection against equities, and the correlation flips from negative to positive. And then that has very profound implications for the way you set up your asset allocation, because basically it breaks. You know, the the modern approach to portfolios just breaks. Uh, All the correlations change, and you end up in a world where equities are selling off and bonds are selling off, and you've really got no hiding place. Now, if that's what you're scared about, the only thing that can really protect you from that, uh, and I said, you know, uh, 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 to a degree, uh, value protects you, because if you look at the 1970s, value outperformed growth. So, you know, the, the kind of reopening trade, the reflation trade actually provides a degree of protection against this scarier outcome. But, you know, in that, in that kind of 1970s environment, all real assets start to look pretty nasty. The only thing that really protects you from that is gold. So you end up saying, well, if this is something that really worries you, you're going to have to put money into gold. Now, obviously, now people are looking at things like Bitcoin and saying well bitcoin is the new gold the digital gold let's use that as our protection the difficulty is that we don't have the data you know when you look at the correlation of bitcoin and equities it's positive so it's not going to help you you know you, you're not going to be able to based on the correlations that we have so far you can't replace the bonds in your portfolio with Bitcoin and expect them to do the same job. Now they might do that job if we get into a kind of serious inflation-stagflation story, but nobody knows. You know, a lot of this is is people punting into into things like Bitcoin. You know, it might work, it might not work. It's very difficult to come up with that with, with that kind of case. So the only thing that can really protect you from that, I think, is gold.
1: I think uh, you know, uh to be continued, but I mean this has been a very uh you know educational hour of discussion. I really appreciate your coming on. I wanna in the next time that we talk, let's talk about a little bit about the uh the the political economy impacts because basically what I heard you saying is is that we've reached a point where uh you know the populism the, is going to turn towards uh William Jennings Bryan, you know, across uh, uh, the gold cross type of uh things where people are out in the streets and uh they're 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 looking for for answers.
2: Yeah, so I mean I, I did a lot of work on the on the long depression, which is in the the second half of the 1800s. And it was a kind of macro terms, it was a world that was defined by two very powerful secular forces. You had globalization and you had a rapid technological change, you had the Industrial Revolution. And it led to massive inequality, massive polarization in job markets. And in the end, there was a political reaction to that you know we had the we had the the start of the uh the welfare state we had the first reference to populism we had uh, protectionism you know a push towards deglobalization uh, we had the first socialist parties you know there was a very radical political reaction to that environment and i think that's kind of what we're seeing before, again and I think that our institutions actually are aware of this. And I think they're starting to respond to it. And I hope that they're starting to respond to this before it gets out of hand. The worry is that, that you know, if they just ignored it, uh, it could have been very destabilizing. So I'm hoping that you know what we're seeing in, in biodynamics in the US and potentially you know, shifts in Europe as well uh, puts us in a, in a much more favorable place, not just to the real economy, but to finance as well. Dario, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. All right, get to talk to you.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.